0: All right, let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your complete revelation. We thank you for the finished canon, where we can see beginning to end your plan for the redemption of this world, your plan for your son to elevate him over all of creation, and your plan for us to glorify us together with him, bringing you ultimate glory. We thank you for the work that you did in the life of Abraham some 4,000 years ago in preparation for all that is still yet to come. Uh, We pray that you would continue to be just as faithful as you always have been. We praise you for the completed promise of sending your son so that he would die for sinners such as us and for Abraham. We thank you that the hope that they looked forward to did not fail them and the hope that we look back on will not fail us As we long for the future when christ will again return and we will be conformed to his image we praise you in the name of your son jesus amen all right you may all be seated we are continuing in genesis in the life of abraham and this morning we look at a passage which is going to specify who the promised seed is coming through so far ever since Uh, Eve, the seed has been designated through a male. It's going to be the son of Noah. It's going to be the son of Shem. It'll be the son of Abraham. Well, here, once again, we are narrowed down to a specific woman as well, that this seed will come through. Part of this revelation appears to be that Abraham just can't get it through his thick skull, that it's actually going to be his wife, who will produce his son rather than some other woman. Well, this is the last sermon in this uh, portion of our Genesis study, which is about procuring a descendant, how it came to be that Abraham actually received the descendant that God promised. Now, unfortunately, this morning we don't get to see the fulfillment, but we do get to see the specific promise of when this son will be born, No longer is Abraham waiting for an unknown future time, but he knows precisely when God is going to fulfill this promise. And he knows specifically through whom. Well, our main point this morning, so you can have this at the forefront of your mind as we look at these verses, is that God's covenant with Abraham promises that the descendants of the seed line will be the direct recipients of all three aspects of the covenant. The land, specifically that land of Israel, the seed or the promised seed who is going to be the savior of the world, and blessing, God's restored presence and fellowship with mankind. This specifies that God will bring about the land redemption, the Messiah, and the restoration of fellowship through Israel. God's choice of Israel and a seed line is not refusal of the rest of the world to receive the benefits of blessing through the covenant, rather it is the means by which He will bless the whole world. Often as we look at, spe- especially this, Mos- or this uh, Abrahamic covenant, we are tempted to see God as disinheriting everyone else except for Israel. In fact, this is a main contention today in a the theological system called covenant theology. They look at these covenants as redemptive covenants. That means only those who are direct recipients of these covenants will have eternal salvation. Well, these covenants have nothing to do with who is receiving eternal salvation. They have all to do with who God is using to bring about salvation that will be offered to the entire world, without exception of any person. And so, as we look at this morning's passage and see this interaction that Abraham has, between his two sons, Ishmael and promised Isaac. We want to understand that Ishmael, not being the recipient of this covenant, is not God saying Ishmael cannot have eternal salvation. It has no reference to that at all. It is only God saying the promised Messiah is not coming through Ishmael. He is coming through Isaac. Don't get that confused. We have three sections of this passage splits into very easily. We have God giving us information about the blessing he will bring to Sarah, and then he has clarification about the blessing he is bringing to both of Abraham's sons. One is in the form of the eternal Abrahamic covenant, and the other is in specific blessings that will be given to Ishmael without reference to his descendants also having an eternal covenant. And then we see Abraham's swift obedience to what God had commanded him to do, and we'll look at some implications of that. Well, we begin in this passage with something that should be familiar to us by now, and this is God renaming something or someone. Here he is renaming the matriarch Sarai. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, Abraham is the one to whom God is telling this. God does not give a specific or special revelation here to Sarah. He is speaking to Abraham about his wife over whom he is responsible. Now, God had specifically spoken to Hagar. He didn't rename her there, but he did reveal his own name and the name of her son to her. Here, God is revealing the new name of Abraham's wife to Abraham. Now the name Sarai and Sarah uh, is a little more challenging even than understanding this change from Abram to Abraham. And if you remember, that wasn't a simple process either. For Abraham and for Sarah, this would have been understandable because it was their first language. For us, we have to do a little extra legwork to understand what's going on here in the text. What is actually happening? Again, it's far too simple to do what most people do, and they spiritualize the text and they say, well, the only difference orthographically here is the added H in the name, or this H-A. And so some will import the meaning back from this Old Testament text into the New Testament and say, well, this is when God gave Abraham and Sarah the Holy Spirit. But do we see that anywhere in the text? No. And in fact, this is an important distinction between the Old Testament saints and the organism of the church. The church has this specific blessing of being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, this permanent change that takes place in us the moment that we believe in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes in to make his home within us, and he never leaves. This is not the case with Old Testament saints. This Holy Spirit would come upon them at times for power and would then depart from them. No such arrangement between the believer in the church and the Holy Spirit exists. And so when we're looking at Abraham and Sarah, we don't want to import church truth into these Old Testament saints. We don't want to draw an improper conclusion. And especially on so little evidence that has no bearing on the text. This addition of an H does not mean that they have received the Holy Spirit. It means that God has changed their names to mean something different. What he does here is actually simplifies Sarah's name. Sarai means not just princess, but my princess. This added I at the very end is actually an AI, that has been added to the name Sarah. When you add this AI, the AH drops away. This is how language works. Letters smoosh together. And so when it looks to us like just the changing of an H, what's actually happening is the replacement of two letters. It's just one happens to be the same. Now the problem here is Sarah, meaning princess, is a singular noun. But AI instead of II is a plural ending. And so it is possible, if not probable, that her name is my princesses rather than simply my princess. So God is changing Sarai, my princesses, to a princess. A very specific name for her and for her alone. Now, what looks to us like a simple H is actually the taking away of a possessive pronoun, my. When we're looking at Sarah's name, we also want to look at Abraham's name. Because Abraham, we're told why he changes his name. We're given a control by which we can test our explanation of why God changed his name in the first place. God tells us he is doing this because he is going to make Abraham himself the father of a multitude of nations. And indeed, when we look at Abraham's name, we see that Abram meant an exalted father. But Abraham means father of an exalted multitude. Terah named Abram, Abram. God named Abraham, Abraham. Terah was exalting himself. In his own earthly status when he named Abram to reflect his own glory. With the birth of Abraham, or Abram, Terah became an exalted father. But God told Abraham to leave, not just from his country and not just from his relatives, but from his father's house, to separate himself from Terah's dynasty because God is going to do something new and something different, something peculiar with Abraham. He is starting a new nation, not a nation that is going to continue from the glories of man, but that God himself will form and create with his own hands. And so, Abram's name was changed to Abraham to reflect God's glory in bringing about this promise to Abraham rather than man's glory in having a natural line of descendants. And the same thing is happening here with Sarai, and the fact that her name is plural and using a possessive pronoun indicates that this is not specifically about Sarah, but about Terah's glory. Terah found glory not only in the birth of his son, but in the birth of his daughters, because he is the exalted father of princesses, of royalty. God strips away this possessive pronoun. He strips away Tara's mind from Sarai's name. And he makes Sarah a princess in her own right. <coughs> he makes her the mother of nations, just as he makes Abraham the father of nations. Remember, as we'll learn here in Genesis 20, verse 12, that Sarah, just like Abraham, is the daughter Of Terah. They were brother and sister, but they had a different mother. And so Terah found glory in both of his children here and in Nahor and Haran and even in Lot. But Abraham and Sarah are to find their glory in God and in his fulfilled promises, because this is what he promises them when they will separate from the dynasty of Terah. He says, I will make you a great nation, not from Terah, but from God. He says, I will bless you, and I will make your name great. The promise to make their name great has to do with fame. Name is also the word in Hebrew for fame. But we see a correlation here as well, where he's even changing their names to indicate that this is how he is fulfilling this promise. He is making their names great, literally, as well as figuratively. And now here he is going to specify how exactly this will happen. God says twice here, I will bless her. And in the middle, he adds a little parenthesis. He says, I will bless her, Sarah, and indeed I will give you a son by her. Sarah's blessing is going to result in blessing to Abram as well, Abraham. The blessing to both of them will be a son, this promised son that shouldn't be able to be born, because not only is Sarah 90, but she's also been barren since her youth. It's well attested of her that she cannot have children, even if she were a young woman Children are not an option for her, but for God. And so he says, I will bless her and she will be a mother of nations. Kings and people will come from her. This is repeating the same promise that God had made to Abraham. Now he is giving it specifically to Sarah. Sarah doesn't receive this promise only through her husband, but God is giving it directly to her as well. Abraham is in charge, yes, but Sarah is just as much a party to this promise as Abraham is, and has every right to be part of God's fulfillment of this promise. Abraham has no right to cut her out of this contract here with God, to have a son through a different woman. Sarah has no right to cut herself out of this. God has said that he will do it through Sarah and through Abraham. And now this also is a death blow to the idea that the Ishmaelites are the rightful heirs to the land and to the promised Messiah. Because Sarah is not the mother of Ishmael. Not even legally. Remember, she had the right to adopt this son. But she didn't. She refused him. She had nothing to do with him. And when Hagar gave birth to Ishmael, she gave birth to Abraham's son, not the son of Abraham and Sarah, as Sarah had plotted early in chapter 16. Sarah's only descendant is through Isaac. And so the promised land can only belong to those descendants who come through Abraham and Sarah, not just Abraham. He promised to make Sarah the mother of many nations, but she's not the mother of the Ishmaelites or the Midianites. Nevertheless, she is still the mother of the Edomites and the Israelites, and that's at least two nations. Not only that, but the kingdom of Israel split into two so she's also the mother of the southern kingdom of Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel. Nations have come from Sarah, and she can rightly be called the mother of nations. Now, when the land was first cursed, in fact, when the curse was first handed down to mankind, it wasn't just through Adam that God promised to restore creation. In fact, Adam was nearly cut out of this whole process. Adam was deemed as the problem. But God said through the woman he is going to bring restoration. We have here in the promise to Sarah Sarah and Abraham the closest parallel we have to the original promise of the gospel. We look at God's concern for the ground, where he says the ground is cursed because of you, Adam. And in toil you will eat of it all the days of your life until you return to the ground, because from it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This was the consequence of man separating himself from God spiritually. He was going to die physically. He was separated from God, no longer having fellowship with him, no longer having intimacy with the God he was created to have fellowship with the land that God created for him to rule over was now cursed. and would not be fruitful for him. And death was introduced into the flesh. God is going to restore all of these problems. He is going to fix all the problems that man created. And he began before he even gave us the curse before he even told us what the consequences of sin were. And in speaking to the serpent, he says, "'I, God, will put enmity between you, "'the serpent, and the woman, "'and between your seed and her seed. "'He shall bruise you on the head,' that is, her seed, "'the seed of the woman.'" Notice how man is almost cut out of the steel. "'And you shall bruise him on the heel.'" the serpent will bruise the promised seed on the heel. And then he speaks to the woman. And this, it appears, Adam paid particular attention to. Because after he, after God gives the promise of a coming seed through the woman that would crush the serpent, who is now the enemy of God and the ruler of this world, God elaborates on how this might come to be. And in Genesis 3.16, he says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain and your childbirth. One is a curse, one is a promise. Yes, there will be pain in her birth and it will be amplified, but so will her childbirth be amplified. With the introduction of death into mankind or into humanity, Multiplied reproduction would be necessary to sustain the bloodline. And God is going to do this sustaining. He says, in pain you will bring forth children. Now whether this means physical pain or the emotional pain of having children born spiritually dead, headed for the grave at the moment they're born. Either way, we have the promise here of continued life through the woman. And it is going to be by means of the woman that God brings life. And so this promise that Abraham has attached himself to, that God is going to bring a seed through his line, ultimately rests on the woman, just as it did with Eve just as it does here with Sarah, and just as it does in the New Testament with Mary. In fact, Joseph is not part of that transaction. And good that he's not, because Joseph is an heir to the throne of David, but through a man named Jeconiah, whose line was cursed, so that no natural descendant of Jeconiah could ever sit on the throne of Israel. And so if Joseph had been part of, of the natural production of the humanity of Jesus, then Jesus would be disqualified from sitting on the throne of Israel. But because it's the seed of the woman, he has every right to inherit Israel. And Israel, because of God's ownership, has every right to be the possessor of all of creation. And Jesus will sit on that throne. Mary, the natural descendant of David, not through the line of Jeconiah. Adam recognized the significance of God's promise and plan for the woman. And his response to the curse was not, Oh, woe is I. But he looked to the promise of God and specifically how God was going to bring it about. And he said, Now the man called his wife's name Eve." He renamed her in recognition of God's promise, and the explanation because she was the mother of all living. Through Eve, life will come to all mankind, naturally. Through Sarah, through the promised descendant that is coming through her, life spiritually will be offered to all mankind. and. Sarah, coming from Eve, brings this promise all the way back to Eve. Through one of the children of Eve, God is going to restore the problem that had occurred in the garden, that man died when he was created for life. And God is recreating for life. Abraham has a response to this. Just as Adam had a response. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart. That means he didn't speak verbally, he thought. This forms what's called an inclusio, like bookends on a bookshelf, holding the ideas together with Genesis seventeen one, where we learned that when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him. Here we have God promising Abraham something unbelievable, something amazing, And his response is to fall on his face and remain silent. And God begins to speak. Abraham here does remain silent for a moment. The laughter that we see is, uh, he laughs, but he doesn't say anything yet. Now, when we see him laughing, we have a tendency to look forward into chapter 18 and read what's happening with Sarah into what's happening with Abraham. But that's also not in the context here. In fact, the normal way to read laughing is joy. In Genesis 18:12, we see that Sarah, when she was told that she would be the mother of this promised seed, laughed to herself. Just like Abraham had, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, uh, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? This is the same question that Abraham is about to raise to God. But there is a difference. Here, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, I shall indeed bear a child when I am so old? Here, God takes issue with Sarah's response. In chapter 17, God takes no such issue. God is able to understand the intent of man's heart. In Genesis, or this should say 18, 14, God's response to Sarah is, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Apparently, she did not believe it possible and that is why she is laughing. At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. She will already be the possessor of a son one year from this interaction in chapter 18. And Sarah's response here is to deny that she laughed. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. She's not able to hide this from him. This was her response. And just like Adam and Eve in the garden who hid because they were afraid, so here Sarah, being afraid of the sin that she just committed and failing to trust the Lord, was afraid. God doesn't let her get away with it here. He says, no, you did laugh. But still, her consequence is the promise. He says, "I'm going to prove you wrong. And next year, when I visit you at this time, you will be proved wrong. And next year, at that time when she is, uh, when she has born this child, its name, his name, reminds her of her failure to trust the Lord." Sarah said, "God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me." And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? What was Sarah's question? After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Shall I really be such a possessor of this kind of joy in my old age? She's laughing mockingly at the idea that she would have the happiness of bearing a child after being barren her whole life. Psalm 126 says, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue was joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. We see in the restoration or redemption here of Israel in a temporal sense, the same kind of joy that Sarah receives from giving birth to a child. Isaiah 54, shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child, break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. Well, to drive this Point home, we turn to the New Testament, which is, at times a divine commentary on the Old Testament. All the commentaries we can fill our shelves with are only man's best estimation. But here in the text of Scripture, we have affirmed for us by the co-authorship of the Holy Spirit, the true interpretation and understanding of what happens in the Old Testament whenever we are given an Old Testament passage. Now, here is an important principle. The New Testament cannot rewrite the Old Testament. The Old Testament is absolutely true as it stands. Some things in the Old Testament aren't fully explained for us. And when the New Testament gives us commentary on it, that is how we ought to understand those things. And so when we turn to Romans 4, and we see Abraham held up as an an image of how we as believers ought to respond in faith to God. We see a commentary on this exact interaction between God and Abraham, where Abraham laughed when he heard this promise that it would come through Sarah. Romans 4.16 says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And so here's where he gets into his example. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. This is what God was doing in Genesis 17 when he was restoring the ability of Sarah to produce. He was giving life to her dead womb, giving life to a reproductive system that had been separated from function. He is restoring that ability. He is giving life to the dead and bringing about that which did not exist, which was a nation. It did not exist until God brought it through Sarah. And now in verse 18, we see that in hope against hope, Abraham believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and he contemplated the deadness of Sarah's womb. This is where we see him thinking about these things, as in chapter 17. This is where we see Abraham thinking, with me 100 years old, as good as dead, Sarah, 90 years old, being barren her entire life, but without becoming weak in faith. We've seen Abraham plenty of times become weak in faith. But Paul, interpreting through the help of the Holy Spirit so that nothing would be inaccurate in his statements, estimated that Abraham here did not lack in faith. Yet, with respect to the promise of God. He did not waver in unbelief but grew strong in faith. Abraham is well on his way to growing into a spiritual giant of faith. And it's not because of him, but God working patiently and graciously toward him. God remaining faithful gives Abraham every reason to trust more and more the promises of God. And God has never at this time let Abraham down and he never will. Abraham is starting to understand this. And so when God makes this amazing promise, he laughs with joy, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Abraham not only knew but trusted that what God said, is able to do this was the issue that God took with Sarah's response his question to her was is anything too challenging for the Lord he didn't have to question Abraham in this because that was not the intention of Abraham's heart Abraham laughed for joy and stated will a child be born to a man 100 years old Now a child was already born to this man when he was 87 years old, and another child will be born to him in a few more decades by the woman Keturah. A hundred years old isn't necessarily the problem, but the fact that he had gone a hundred years without having received a son through his wife. Rather than the oldness and weakness of his body, I think Abraham's concern here is after so many years, After such a long time being married to Sarah, where we have not produced, are we now going to produce a child? The added problem will be that not only is Sarah old as well, but she's barren. These are two different problems. She was incapable even in her youth of having children, and now God is going to make her capable. But we have something else interesting going on here with the ages. This is why it's helpful that we did Genesis 1 through 11 first, because we can quickly look through all of these ages. Now, when Adam had Seth, he was 130 years old. This is older than Abraham, but this is also before the Flood, when ages were much longer. Adam lives to be 930 years old. Methuselah is going to live to be 969 years old. Now, in comparison, Let's just divide these out by 10. If he lives to be 93 years old in uh, pre-flood years, then he's giving birth at 13. Now these aren't ages. This is looking at it in the same percentage. How about Seth giving birth to Enosh or having Enosh at 105 years old? Enosh at 90, Kenan at 70, Mahalo at 65, Jared at 62, Enoch at 65, Methuselah at 187. 187 kind of starts to stand out as seems pretty old. But notice, even in the pre-flood era, when people are living into their 900s, 100 is still one of the rarer ages. It's still pretty old. Not impossible, obviously. And many of these probably continued to have children into their hundreds, 200s, 300s, perhaps. But the seed line was given much earlier. God was faster about fulfilling these promises to these men. God is here testing the patience of Abraham, but he's doing that to grow him. Now, if we jump into the generations that crossed the flood, We have Lamech at 182. We have Noah at 500. That's pretty old. Noah continued to live after the flood for another 300 years. But we identified when we went through Genesis 1 through 11 this old age as being part of the problem of why men started to live younger, or die younger and younger afterwards. It wasn't so much the environment that they entered into after the flood that this would have an effect on the individual. But so far as the line goes, the genetics go, the mutations that are possible in uh, in reproduction at 500 years old is going to be much greater, and we see ages drastically drop after this. The entire world is affected by these mutations in Noah's bloodline that cause shorter lifespans. But still we have Shem giving birth to our Pachshad at 100 years old. Notice then, rather than seeing in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, we see everyone pretty much in the 30s. God's a little faster here about giving the promised seed just as he said to Eve, I'm going to speed up your reproduction to maintain this bloodline. Here we see him speeding up in fulfilling the promise of a coming seed to sustain the bloodline. As we move into what is Genesis chapter 11, we see Sarag at 30, Nahor at 29, and then something a little unique here. Jumping back to a pretty old age, Terah. For this day and age after the flood, 70 is pretty old to give birth to a son, especially one of the seed sons. But then we see Abraham at 100 years old, just as Shem was. Isaac is going to be pretty normal, 60 years old. Jacob, a little old, somewhere between 88 and 90 once again. And when we get to see Jacob's Um, bloodline, we'll see that God is also testing Jacob in a similar way as he's testing Abraham here by delaying the promise. In fact, he delays the promise, although uh, Judah does come through Leah, which is his first wife. God has Jacob wait seven years to marry Leah, working for Laban, uh, his uncle, cousin, the relationship, I'm not quite sure, of, but one of his relatives but here's what I want to point out. God tends to work in patterns sometimes. And this, we can see, as his thumbprint on scripture. Noah, who was exceptionally old in his age to have children, gave birth to the seed son, uh, one of three sons, who to him was fulfilled the seed son promise at 100. Terah, exceptionally old for his age, Gave birth to three sons, Abraham being the seed son, who continued the seed line at age 100. The only thing that I would point out here is that God is doing with Abraham what he was doing with Shem. Remember when we looked at chapter 11 that we saw some parallels there between how God discusses this new beginning for the earth after the flood and how God is talking about the new beginning for the world through Israel and Abraham. This is one of those creative ways that Moses, with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, structures Revelation so that we can see parallels in these books and understand what God is doing. He is working to restore the earth in a similar level to how he restored the earth after the flood. God is being faithful to his promises despite what we might see as natural. We look at a hundred years old today and all of us would say, no way. But at this time in Abraham's life, he's going to live to 175. In fact, most of these patriarchs live well into their hundreds, close to 200. That's only twice as long as we live today. And so... If we divide these in half, let's say, the promise is still that she is going to give birth at 50. And it probably would have been a little further along her her aging back then. So that this is still an older woman who should not be able to have children, having children or receiving this promise to have children. She's 90 years old. I don't think Oh, we might have a few 90 year olds here. But none of you are having children. None of you are able to have children at this time. In fact, considerably speaking, we're only able to have children for a small portion of our lives. If we live to 100 years old, child-rearing years are only about 20 years of that, maybe 30, 40 really pushing it, but up to 90 years old. If we were to look at this from the flesh, we would say, absolutely, this is impossible. God is telling them to look at him who created all things, who created life out of nothing. Now, we know through the sciences that you cannot create life out of nothing. But God can. I think it's the science of the world, the natural observation of the world that's really standing between Sarah and her faith here, and it was standing between Abraham and his faith. He's looking out at the world. He's observing God's general revelation, which we're supposed to do, but we are supposed to take it hand in hand with God's divine revelation. He interprets for us the things that we see around us. This was how he structured it back in the garden, where God didn't just put Adam in the garden and let him figure out what to do, but he instructed him on what to do. And up until the fall, or Adam was faithful to do what God had commanded him. Here we see that return to faithfulness, just like we did with Noah, when God gave him commands and Noah did just as God told him to. Here, God is giving some commands to Abraham along with a promise, and Abraham is going to do just as God told him to. Because he is accepting divine revelation about the general revelation that he sees around him. This is just to remind you that Sarah was barren, not just old. All right, let's look at the sons that were promised blessing. Abraham expresses a desire for Ishmael. This verse, I think, is what causes people to read disbelief into Abraham's laughter. Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Now, what we do here is we have a tendency to spiritualize this idea of live before you, rather than take it for what it means to live in God's presence. We say, well, this is Abraham asking for Ishmael rather than Isaac to be the descendant. Abraham has no problem specifying his request to God, specifying his understanding of his own situation, now, if you remember from Genesis 15, I don't even think this is Abraham asking for Eliezer of Damascus to be his heir, but he's stating in the natural legal system here, if I go right now without the descendant that you've promised, Eliezer of Damascus is getting everything I have. Legally speaking, the world considers him my heir. Since I am childless, the heir of my house, Eliezer of Damascus since you have given no offspring to me one born in my house is my heir but this isn't how this is used everywhere else in scripture when we see this life used elsewhere it is for the maintaining of physical life this is what abraham is asking for ishmael he realizes that god's specific promised covenant of continued life, of presence together with God, is not through Ishmael, but it's through Isaac. Abraham understands this, and he asks God, but don't forget my other son. In Genesis 7 verses 2 through 3, God speaking to Noah says, you shall take with you of every clean animal by sevens, a male and his female, and of the animals that are not clean to a male and his female, also the birds of the sky by sevens, male and female, to keep offspring alive. This is the exact same verb here used. To keep offspring alive on the face of all the earth. This on the face is before. The same structure we have back here. Literally in the Hebrew it says that he might live before your face. In Genesis 12, please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. This is physical life. Now behold, this town Zoar is near enough to flee to, and it is so or it is small. Please let me escape there, is it not small, that my life may be saved. A request for physical continuation of life. Genesis 20, in the Abimelech controversy. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live physically. God was going to kill Abimelech physically because of his sin with Sarah. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die physically. You and all who are yours. Genesis nineteen twenty four, the angels in the city of Sodom. On the following day, the first or, oh this is the uh, this is his daughters. This is nineteen thirty four. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drunk, drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve. This is the same verb, live, that we may live through our family by our father. Physical life, the continuation of this physical bloodline is their concern. Abraham's concern for Ishmael is that he might have a similar blessing to Isaac. Ishmael is still Abraham's son. Abraham still loves him. Abraham wants him to be a partaker in the blessings of this covenant, because he realizes that they do not belong to him, and so he has to make special request that they would be extended to him. And God is going to do this because he is going to be faithful to his promise to Hagar. And I think once again, this is one of the reasons this account between Abraham and Hagar or between God and Hagar is included in the text so that when we get to chapter 17, we understand God's benevolence towards Ishmael. The angel of the Lord said to Hagar, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, behold, you are with child and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael. God hears because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. So Abraham asks for Ishmael not to be cut out completely. God is going to clarify to him exactly how this covenant will operate in relation to the promised seed and to Ishmael. God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear a son. Now this is a translation according to sense, not according to the words themselves. In other words, this is an interpretive translation. The word itself is not no, but truly. They've interpreted this as meaning, contrary to what you think, Abraham, this is what is true. In English, we would naturally say no. This actually is one of the difficulties of language, where here in America, someone might say, that's not true, is it? And I would say, no, it's not. It's not true. Well, in other languages, this would be considered a double negative. When I lived in Korea, this got me in trouble a lot. Someone would say, that's not true, is it? And I would say no, and they're like, okay, so it's true. No, it's not true. No means yes. And so, this is one of the difficulties we deal with when translating. There is nothing nefarious going on here in the translation. No one's trying to trick you or pull the wool over your eyes but the the translator has a need to interpret what does this mean? What does truly mean here? But because he has interpreted Abraham's statements about Ishmael and Abraham's laughter as a negative, he is saying that God is contradicting rather than clarifying. And so he translates no instead of truly. I think he's made an error here. I think it needs to be just what the word naturally means, which is truly. And I might add this word in green, in English, but, is not in the text. But it helps clarify what the no would mean if the no were indeed what truly meant. So I think this is a better way to understand this verse. When Abraham asks that Ishmael might live before God, God said, truly, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son. In other words, Abraham, don't forget this point. I'm going to hear you about Ishmael, but this needs to be understood first. Truly, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, which is laughter. And in fact, there's two words for laughter. This word, Yitzhak, is only used in Genesis. I think there might be one instance where it's used in Exodus. Moses changes then from that to a different uh, word, which I can't remember. But the rest of the Old Testament uses that different word for laughter. And that word for laughter frequently means mocking. But this one, most usually, except for the instance with Sarah, means joy. Isaac's name is not mockery. Isaac's name is joy in the fulfilled promises of God. And then God says, I will establish, which is this same word, kum, that we saw in the original promise to Abraham. Remember, when Abraham was given this promise, God used three different words that were all translated establish in the English text. One was to give, one was to cut, and one was to maintain. God is promising here that he will continue this promise that he gave to Abraham throughout Abraham's generations through this specific seed line of isaac says my covenant with him will be an everlasting covenant one that will continue until its fulfillment in the messianic kingdom this was genesis sorry all of my numbers are wrong here this is genesis 17 7 through 8 i will maintain my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you this is him speaking to abraham throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And here's the crux of the issue. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land. This promise is not given to Ishmael. This promise is given to Isaac because God has a purpose for the nation of Israel in the land of Israel with the king of Israel. And this is how he will restore not just our spiritual life, but our physical life as well. And God's purpose on this earth, which is to rule through the intercession of mankind, through the one intercessor who is capable of keeping God's will perfectly without failure, the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, needs a land in which to rule. Needs a nation over which to be king. This is the covenant through Abram to the nation of Israel. The church does not fulfill this covenant. The church has no claims to the physical land of Israel. It belongs to the people of Israel for an everlasting covenant because God is going to fulfill his promises through them. Not through Ishmael, not through Esau, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice, Isaac is not even born yet and God is already confirming his covenant to this unborn child. Isaac is not even conceived yet. God said at this time next year, 12 months from now, three more months are going to go by before this seed will even be conceived. But God answers Abraham's request about Ishmael as well. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. In other words, he is answering affirmatively. He is giving Abraham his request. Now, if Abraham were asking for Ishmael to replace Isaac, for God not to give him this extra blessing, but that the incomplete blessing would be the fulfillment. That is not what Abraham is asking because God is saying, yes, you can have your request. As for Ishmael, I have heard you and behold, I will bless him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. This is the same promise he gave to Hagar without the inclusion of a land promise, without the inclusion of an eternal descendant promise because the eternal descendant, Jesus the Messiah, is not coming through Ishmael. He says, I will make him a great nation. And in doing that, God says, he shall become the father of 12 princes. Notice there is a limit given on here. There is no such limit given on the seed line. God instead says they will be so numerous that the sand and the stars are the closest approximation to how many there will be. Nowhere are we told this is the end of the line for Israel, but for Ishmael, there is a meter put on it, 12 princes. This is his limit. And this is fulfilled very quickly. Notice how God, when he gives these promises through the seed line, extends them into generation after generation after generation after generation, so that it takes the whole Old Testament and into the New Testament to see their fulfillment but the promises he's giving here to Ishmael, we see their fulfillment almost immediately. Their complete fulfillment almost immediately. In Genesis 25, it says, these are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in the order of their birth. Uh, I won't read all these. There's 12 names. These are the sons of Ishmael, the ones that were promised to him because of Abraham's request. And these are their names by their villages and by their camps, 12 princes according to their tribes. God is faithful to his promises. But once again, to drive the point home, God bookends this extension of blessing to Ishmael by once again restating, but my covenant. Not having to do with Ishmael, my covenant, don't forget. I will establish or maintain it with Isaac whom Sarah will bear at this season next year. In a few chapters, in chapter 20, uh, no, next chapter, in chapter 18, we will see God coming again and saying, at this time next year, when he comes back, she will already have a son. This is a little bit later, but less than 12 months between that and the time the son will come. And at that point, God departs. He ends his conversation with Abraham here. When he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Abraham didn't have much to say in this whole conversation. He mostly just received what God had to say. He received commandments from God. He received promises from God. He received the promise that the covenant would depend on God and that it would be maintained throughout all of the generations that would come from him. Through Sarah and through Isaac. But God doesn't give him an opportunity here before departing just as quickly and suddenly as he appeared 13 years after he had last appeared to Abraham. But this time, when he departs, there's a promise that he is going to see him again. Because one year from that date, God is going to return to Abraham and Abraham will have received the blessing of the covenant that was promised to him, which was a descendant through Sarah. Now, very quickly here, we'll look at the last few verses, which is a summary statement of Abraham's specific uh, faithfulness to the commands that God had given him. Just as when Adam and Eve are given the curse, Adam immediately recognizes the promise and acts on that promise. So here, Abraham recognizes the promise and has a specific commandment given to him about that promise, and he immediately takes action. This is a man whose faith has grown so that obedience is naturally flowing from his faith. This is not a man who just stumbled once more over his own pride. Then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all his servants who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's household, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskin in the very same day as God had said to him. Now this is a summary statement, but it's a summary statement that reiterates in a list all of the clauses that God had given him in the commandment. In other words, Abram didn't miss a thing. Everything that God had told him to do, he was faithful to the T, to do it exactly how God had said. Once again, mirroring the patriarch Noah, through whom God rescued the world. God is here rescuing the world through his promises to Abraham, and he has the faith of Noah in doing so. Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. This summary, though, is very concise, just a summary statement. But with Abraham, we get all the nitty gritty details. Notice as well in Genesis 7, 13, how quickly Noah fulfills all that God had commanded him. When God says, now it's time to get in the ark, on the very same day, he didn't wait because there is a deadline here. Seven days, he says, and the earth is going to be flooded. On the very same day, then Noah and Shem, and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, Noah's wife, the three wives of his sons with them, they entered the ark, and all of the little critters that came with them. It wasn't just the seed line that God rescued here. But he rescued everyone who was part of the blessings of the covenant that he is going to make with Noah. Abraham has already received the giving of the covenant. Noah was promised that after his faithfulness he would receive this covenant. But he brought along with him everything. And God preserved them as well. Now notice in Exodus 12:43, when Israel is about to depart from Exodus heading towards their promised land, part of their covenant under Abraham. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover, another commandment that he gives them. But he says, no foreigner is to eat of it, but every man's slave purchased with money after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. This promise of the Passover is looking forward to this fulfillment of God rescuing Israel out of Egypt the way that he did this, which was to defeat Pharaoh and to bring them into the land of promise. And it, we're told later in scripture, is going to be overshadowed by God's ultimate victory in defeating the Antichrist and bringing Israel into their kingdom. But here, the ordinance of the Passover is tied together with their identity under the Abrahamic covenant. Because they are going out to possess the land, they are to remember who it is the land belongs to. No foreigner is to partake of this until they've been circumcised and brought into that nation. A sojourner, which is a temporary traveler, or a hired servant, one who is not indentured part of this nation, he shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. So not only is everyone who is not part of Israel excluded from this, but all of Israel, who is under the Abrahamic covenant, is told to take part in this. So he says, but if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it, and he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you, and all the sons of Israel did so. They were all obedient to this command that God gave them, just as they are about to be taken out of the land of Egypt. They did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that same day, the Lord brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. Now we're given again a summary statement in verse 24. Now Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, being a part of the blessing aspect of this covenant and having his own promises from God, he is circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin at 13 years old. In fact, the Arabs still continue to do this at 13 years old because their ancestor, Ishmael, was circumcised at 13, whereas the Jews continued to do it on the eighth day as God had commanded because God specifically told them to do it on the eighth day. Most of the accounts of circumcision that we get are not on the eighth day because they are exceptions. This is Israel failing to be faithful to this command to circumcise their children on the eighth day. In fact, one of the very few accounts of an eighth day circumcision we have is the account of Jesus' own circumcision, because he is a party to this Abrahamic covenant, and it is through him that it will all be fulfilled. Once again, God, through Moses, states the expediency of Abraham's faithfulness. Once again, he says, in that very same day, Abraham was circumcised and Ishmael his son. Now, this is the last bit of uh, of verses we'll look at here. But in Joshua 5, starting in verse 2, we see there's a problem when the second generation of Israel, after the first generation was faithfully by God brought out of Egypt, this second generation, to whom the covenant also belongs, is about to enter the land that was promised to them, but their parents had not been faithful to the command that God had given them under the Abrahamic covenant to circumcise their children. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourselves flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Ha'ar This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them, all the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, all those who were circumcised in Exodus 12 when they ate of the Passover. They died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. Not only was this generation of Israel excluded from experiencing the blessing of entering into the land because of their unfaithfulness, but they continued to be unfaithful while they wandered the wilderness. They did not teach their children about the promise of God's covenant. And in Deuteronomy, in the second giving of the law, God reiterates to Israel their responsibility when they get into the land is to continue to teach the next generations. And this is one of the institutions by which They are to cut into their very flesh this instruction about god's covenant so that they will not in any generation forget it because the lord could visit them in any generation to bring the promised seed in joshua 5 6 he says for the sons of israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation that is the men of war who came out of egypt perished because they did not listen to the voice of the lord they were not faithful to him to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. They were not going to receive the blessings of this promise. And so their children whom he had raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised. As they're about to enter, Joshua makes sure they're all in covenant faithfulness, because they had not circumcised them along the way, Now when they had finished circumcising all the nations, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And while the sons of Israel camped in Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month, 40 years after they had done so in Egypt, on the desert plains of Jericho. And on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Now remember, Genesis was written to the second generation of Israel, wandering in the wilderness. They should know the significance of this Abrahamic covenant and their command to be circumcised. And Moses would have had this reinforced to him when, his, when he was almost killed for not being faithful to circumcise his own child. The second giving of the law in Deuteronomy would remind them all of their responsibilities under this covenant as they're about to enter into the land. But Joshua here heeded the words of Moses in Genesis and in Deuteronomy, and when he got into the land, he circumcised them all. And then they celebrated the Passover, recognizing God's faithfulness and bringing them into the land. And that day, that very first day, God was faithful to give them part of the blessing of living in the land, which was to eat the produce of the land. He would sustain them in there. The last verse here, not only was Abraham circumcised and not only was Ishmael circumcised, but every single man who was part of Abraham's dynasty was also circumcised because they would all be responsible as partakers in this covenant to keep the covenant. All the men of the household who were born in the house or bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. All right. God's covenant with Abraham promises that the descendants of the seed line will be the direct recipients of three aspects of the covenant, land, seed, and blessing. To them, it belongs, not to Ishmael, not to us, the church, but we will partake in the blessings of this covenant. This specifies that God will bring about the land redemption, the Messiah, and the restoration of fellowship through Israel. We want it to be specifically through Isaac, specifically through Jacob, specifically through Judah, so that it can be specifically through Jesus. But that doesn't mean everyone who is not Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Jesus, is not saved. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with bringing the Savior of the whole world. God's choice of Israel and a seed line is not refusal of the rest of the world to receive the benefits of blessing through covenant, rather it is the means by which he will bless the whole world. And we know as we have been looking in the uh, spiritual life class on Tuesdays, most recently we looked at this life that God has presented to the entire world through his son Jesus Christ. And this coming Tuesday we're going to look at the effects of that in our life as well. So come to that if you will as well. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you for your covenant structure through which you bring the promised Savior of the world and through which you will be vindicated in all of creation when your Son, the Messiah, sets up his eternal dynasty in the land of Israel, over which he will rule the entire world. We do praise you for the salvation that he has given to us through his blood. We praise you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.